0: Welcome to episode three of the new podcast series from understanding society the longitudinal study that captures life in the uk in the 21st century each year understanding society questions every member of thousands of the same households in the uk we ask about education employment family life health income and civic participation and since april 2020 we've been asking about covid 19. Every answer to those questions becomes part of an ever-growing complex data set that tells a multitude of real-life stories, unfolding in real-time and unlocking the causes and consequences of social change. It's data that provides evidence for debate and, ultimately, change. If you've listened before, you'll know that in each episode of the series, we're exploring how understanding society data has been used in a key area, what it's told us when analysed, and what it's informed as a result. I'm Catherine MacDonald, your series host. In this episode, we're discussing vital work conducted by Understanding Society and the Health Foundation around the health impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me are Professor Meena Kumari, our topic champion for health and biomarker research, and David Finch, Assistant Director in the Healthy Lives Directorate at the Health Foundation. We begin with Mina explaining what drove the choices made by the Understanding Society team as they planned their COVID-19 survey.
1: As the pandemic came upon us, we realised that we were going to have to think about how we could use that information that we'd already collected. So we already had information about people, their education, schooling, what they were doing. We have information about people's houses. We have information about their health. We have information about their mental health. And so we went through, as it were, what information we had to think about what could the pandemic change. So um, we were funded by the Health Foundation and and ESRC to administer a questionnaire to the participants. And so we were the first longitudinal data set to administer this questionnaire during the very early stages of the lockdown to try and understand what it was that was actually changing for people. And what did we ask about? We asked about schooling, we asked about what people were doing at home, we asked about caring, we asked about you know coronavirus symptoms, we asked about hospitalisation and long-term conditions because it was clear right at the beginning that those are the sorts of things that might change or be impacted by the pandemic.
0: And crucially these are the things that we will go on monitoring beyond our COVID-19 survey as well aren't they?
1: Yeah, so I have to commend the Understanding Society team because what we did was administer this questionnaire and we did it at the beginning on a monthly basis, but we stayed in the field with our our main data collection. So we've been collecting from participants all the way through the pandemic, in addition to these focused online surveys about these kind of newer things that we were interested in measuring. And we've over time incorporated that into the main survey so we can continue to keep collecting this information, um, even after we stopped the focused online additional survey that we were administering. So what Understanding Society will be able to do is link the pandemic conditions, as it were, to before the pandemic. We've got information during the pandemic. We'll be able to see what's happening, hopefully after the pandemic. We've got information all the way through this kind of external thing that happened to us.
0: And what you've just described there is exactly what longitudinal research is all about, isn't it?
1: Exactly, exactly. That's that's what we're hit for, as it were, in terms of trying to understand what happens to people as the world changes. We're understanding society. We're trying to understand what's happening to people as economic conditions change, as political conditions change, as social conditions change. And my focus is what's happening to people in terms of their health and what the interactions between these social changes and health changes. And in lots of ways, the pandemic has been the exemplar of that. This health thing has happened to us. It's caused what will be enormous social changes. And we want to see what has happened to people, what is happening to their health during that change. Um, So that we we can really understand how all these different domains of life are impacting each other, interacting with each other, which ones are being impacted the most. The data set are kind of perfect for that.
0: And David, if I could bring you in here. So obviously, in addition to co-funding Understanding Society's COVID-19 survey, the Health Foundation also ran its own COVID-19 impact inquiry to review the factors that fueled the UK's death toll. You led that work. Can you tell us how that work began and give us a bit more detail about what you were looking at?
2: Sure. So we really wanted to understand how people's health prior to the pandemic was affecting their outcomes through the pandemic, and also understand the kind of implications of the various measures and changes that were happening through the pandemic and we felt we came up with the the plan and the idea for doing this in the autumn of 2020 and felt that it was there was really a need to try and get to grips with the entirety of the data that was coming out and the information that was there and try and understand how that all fits together and we were particularly interested in how as well as that kind of immediate impact on health that COVID was having how it's affecting the wider determinants of health the kind of influences on on people's health through the conditions and circumstances that they live in as well as the kind of groups who are potentially where data was lacking. So that was something we were very aware of. There were potentially some particularly vulnerable groups who we had little understanding about, and we wanted to understand how far we could either fill those gaps or at least highlight that they were an issue for future research. The inquiry
0: drew on understanding society. What did our data provide?
2: It's very much a survey that we valued quite highly um, even before the pandemic. So the richness of the data, the ability to look at how people's circumstances are changing over time. I mean, it's something that's been used in either research we're funding or analysis we're doing ourselves in-house. And that was something we realised very early on in the pandemic, that if you were going to then have good research in future on either the immediate impacts or long-term impacts, we needed to make sure that there was um, good quality data being collected for the longer term. And I think there's one, one very specific example where we, especially that first wave of data collected, which I think Mina mentioned as well, which was the ability to collect really detailed data on people's health conditions and whether or not they were maintaining their interaction with the healthcare system. And that was something that I think on the something like the day that data was released and available to us, about two or three days later, we were putting it into the um, select committee's inquiry on the same topic at the time. So there's a kind of really, I think I would say the understanding society providing really valuable long-term Resource, but also had some really important and a really important role in the immediate term in so, I mean, getting a kind of a very quick understanding of what was happening.
0: So, if I could come back to you, Mina, inequality is a word we've heard a lot in debate and discussion around the impact of COVID 19. What did our COVID 19 survey tell us were the main drivers of physical health inequalities, first of all?
1: If you want to talk about inequalities, there are groups that are at risk. And here we're talking about inequalities, kind of age inequalities, gender inequalities, health inequalities, you know, ethnic inequalities, social inequalities. The pandemic or the virus was sort of putting a spotlight on the inequalities that we already know are there. We know that, that, you know, there are social inequalities. Poorer people, as it were, have poorer health. And so they're already at risk of bad outcomes from being infected. Ethnic minority people have more metabolic disease. So, you know, you see more diabetes in in different ethnic groups. And that and obesity seem to be a risk factor for, you know, mortality from infection. So you could see how it was kind of playing out. The pandemic was kind of putting a spotlight on these inequalities. And it will be interesting to see how kind of that plays out kind of afterwards. How do we deal with
2: that?
0: And David, I believe your COVID-19 impact inquiry drew similar conclusions.
2: One thing in particular we found, which we thought was really striking, is the inequality in the COVID mortality rates between working age people. So the, the COVID mortality rate for the most deprived 10% of Working-age people living in the most deprived 10% of areas was around nearly four times as high as those living in the least deprived areas. And I think there were, there were just a number of levels in which that was really striking. I mean, you had that that kind of deprivation um, relationship, at the across all across all COVID deaths, but it was just less strong for for older group, for older age groups. But it was also um, when you looked at other countries as well. We were about other than I think Bulgaria, we're the only country I think across, across Europe that had at this high rate of kind of extra deaths in in, in working. Age people, as well as kind of the older population, and we think that reflected two things. Which again, like I mean, has mentioned these these kind of issues. One is the pre-existing health. So um, there's a again, there's a strong deprivation link pattern between how many people have two or more existing conditions, and especially in that kind of age group of people in their 50s and 60s, um, which just points to that issue that we have a. Population with poorer health in the first place, leaving them then more vulnerable to COVID if they get infected. But then there's also this question of the extent to which different groups are exposed. And I think I mean, there were lots of challenges in trying to dig into the um, and understand the impact and what was actually happening through the pandemic. But one thing that was apparent in the, I think it's the ONS's data on mortality by occupation, you could see that firstly you had quite a strong pattern of people working in the kind of lower skilled occupations, things like elementary occupations tended to have higher COVID mortality rates. But that actually partly reflected that before the pandemic, people working in those um, occupations also had higher um, mortality rates. That points to a kind of pre-existing poor health. But then once um, restrictions came in, we did see a big drop off in the overall mortality rates across occupations because people were effectively staying at home during the first lockdown. But within those occupations where people were still exposed because they were at risk because they're still going out to work, you could see that higher mortality rate still there. So I think on multiple levels, the ways in which pre-existing inequalities in people's circumstances were effectively playing out um, through the impact of the pandemic in various different ways.
0: Amina, what about mental health inequalities? Same question, really. What were the drivers of those?
1: During the first wave, we wrote a paper where we were looking at what we thought were kind of pandemic related stressors and how they might impact changes in mental health. Uh, We we looked at loneliness and psychological distress and we could see that during the pandemic, the pandemic related stresses that were associated with changes in mental health were things like, you know, losing your job, unemployment and and financial problems and um, experiencing loneliness. And one of the things that we measured, have measured during the pandemic is kind of time use. What were people doing at home? So we have questions on, you know, homeschooling wasn't there. No one was homeschooling really before the pandemic, but clearly everyone was during lockdowns. And um, in terms of domestic work that we had this uh, decline in women's mental health, particularly when they were doing lots and lots of homeschooling. So you could see kind of there was, although physically the evidence is in terms of mortality, for example, that it's men that were impacted by the virus, the sort of everyday, day-to-day changes that were happening during the things like lockdown, in terms of mental health, it was women that were being impacted. And what about protective
0: measures such as furlough?
1: things like furlough worked if people were not experiencing lots of financial problems they they didn't it wasn't impacting their mental health too so so those were the those were the sort of main drivers of changes in mental health certainly in the in the first lockdown Um, and by last summer when 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 lockdown was easing we could still see some of those impacts but in terms of mental health it returned to kind of pre-pandemic levels and then um, during the autumn when we, we went back into another lockdown, various of things that mental health, again, the levels of mental health kind of started, uh, poor mental health started rising again.
0: And David, same question to you. What did your impact inquiry find when it came to mental health?
2: I mean, we largely found very similar to, um, as Mina set out, I mean, the Understanding Society was one of the resources we we referred to and included our own analysis and research that others were doing and I think that's because you had this really good longitudinal element where you could see what people's mental health was before the pandemic came through Um, and so you you can compare back to those to see what the changes have been but we were also looking at wider evidence, including some surveys we'd funded to have much more of an through some research with Resolution Foundation to understand in a bit more depth some of the economic impacts that were coming through. But it was very clearly that, that there were some similar trends that we found. I mean, I think young people, especially as well as as well as well women, were reporting poorer mental health. And there were definite links to other people's, the actual experience people had had from an income point of view. So people with a worsening financial situation tended to have poorer mental health, but also people with who were more concerned about the future as well. I mean, there's obviously some interplay between these variables, but that importance of things like the furlough scheme was very clear across different data sources. It's hard to understand if it's purely the financial element, but also maintaining a connection to work and how far that may have had an impact on people's feelings about the future and their feelings of security. And then that variation in restrictions. I can remember the, I think it was the January wave of understanding society, where I think it was the first time we'd seen at a high level that women in their, kind of in their 30s were reporting worse mental health than women in their 20s. And it was entirely down to, to mums in that month where you had homeschooling again. We're really accounting for that big shift in, in poor mental health. So that kind of, yeah, that kind of variation in restrictions and how it's affecting people was also very clear. I think that one question that still remains is kind of what this will mean for the future. It's not just been a very short period of experiencing poor mental health, which I think we'd all expect with the big changes we saw, particularly um, in that first lockdown, that you're going to have some kind of effect. But it's what this means for the future. For some people, that poor mental health has been, deterioration has been maintained over large parts of the pandemic. For others, it's their first incident, or perhaps you've had multiple incidents over a relatively short period of time. And it's what that means in the future, and whether we will find that if there is a future crisis, will people be less resilient to that now? And will we have a kind of are we likely to have a higher level of poor mental health across the population going forward? So I think these are interesting questions that we really need to understand as we go forward.
1: I agree, actually. I think that there's a sort of idea that, you know, during an event, you know, you have your immediate responses, but over time, after the event... The sort of reaction to that. We don't know what's going to happen, do we? You know, in the Second World War, during the war, there was this idea that we were all kind of quite stoic and um, there was a sort of blitz spirit and it was after the war that you could sort of see the, the impact of it and people carrying those things with them. And so I think that we we, we actually don't know what's going to happen, do we, in terms of future mental health. There's lots of things that have been experienced now that might have these kind of longer term impacts. You know, people working in the in health services or people who, who had to go out um, and kind of expose themselves that while they're doing it, they're kind of doing it. But afterwards, what's the impact going to be on them when they kind of almost look back on it? You can see often, for example, I don't know, after the after the troubles finished in Northern Ireland, that there was the, the poor mental health kind of came afterwards. Um, in terms of outcomes and mortality due to things like suicide and that kind of thing. So I think keeping track of what's happening to people, keeping track of their mental health afterwards, understanding that we've collected the right kind of information now in terms of what people were doing, in terms of people being a key worker, having to go out and, and the occupations that they did. And making sure that we've done a good job of measuring all of that now so that we can understand as we keep tracking people over time after this event has happened, um, it's it's going to be really a really important thing to do.
0: I don't know if this is an impossible question to answer, but what factors had created a society that was set to experience the pandemic in the way we did here in the UK?
2: This is a very big question. Um, I mean, I think some of these factors, they're just, they are kind of inherent in the type of culture and society that has developed in our country over a number of years. So they're kind of, to some extent, the shape of the economy and the types of institutions we have. You know, we have a very open economy and visits with it into the UK, people moving around. I think the, that kind of service the size of the kind of service and hospitality sectors, some of those features mean that we had greater risk of something like the pandemic in the first place. And something that showed through different international research was how important lockdowns were in the timing of how big your kind of impact from COVID was. So ours was bigger potentially because we didn't lock down as quickly as some other countries. But then the kind of way in which those differences in outcome, the inequalities from COVID are then very much reflecting pre-existing factors within society. And some of that is the um, economic resilience of different groups so we've got relatively high poverty levels particularly um, on child poverty which hasn't been improving over time. I think the kind of austerity era off the back of the last crisis of the financial crisis meant that public services were very stretched. And so they're not going to be in a great position to be able to respond quickly across the board. So there's very much a mix of some of our longer term culture and society shapes, some of these features, but also some of the ways in which we recovered from the last financial crisis, failed to build up more resilience, really stretched the kind of public services and the safety net that was on offer, which meant we either had to do very big changes very quickly, things like the, the furlough scheme, which was completely different to the types of support in place. But it also meant that for some of those more disadvantaged groups who were already not getting the support they needed through the current welfare state, they were left even more vulnerable to the pandemic.
1: I think that all of the things that David just said uh, were important, and we could already see that um, w- we we might not be as resilient to society as it were as others might be. We were already, you know, at life expectancy has increased year on year on year on year recently and then just before the pandemic there were places in the country where life expectancy had stopped increasing so we were already seeing evidence or some suggestion that we we weren't doing that well in terms of of health because life expectancy should be increasing Um, and so there were parts of the country where and some for some groups where it had stopped increasing so in some ways perhaps we were already not as resilient as we as we could have been so so that on top of the this- things that david's just talked about there were there were sort of signs perhaps that we might not have been as resilient as some some populations and our our population was actually really good at doing things like locking down and staying and uh, and doing as it were what it was supposed to in terms of the pandemic but we we have just been through a period of lots of elections and we've had brexit so in terms of the sort sort of social solidarity that you might need when you're um when you're trying to deal with this kind of external thing that has come upon us um we might not have been in the place that we we should have been so, so i think those are the the things that i would say in terms of the, the health of the nation and how resilient it was uh b- before the pandemic came and what so we had these inequalities already, and they were large, and and that might not have helped us.
0: Okay, so Mina, there's still so much we don't know about how long COVID-19 will last, and what the specific scarring effects will be. What do you think the recovery needs to prioritise? It's, it's
1: hard, isn't it? Because so much everyone's been affected and, and people have been affected in different ways, but they've also been affected in different parts of their life. So that, so that we know, you know, if you didn't get the education you needed, then that Potentially has a lifelong impact on you. We know from uh, I don't know previous recessions and things that if people don't enter the labour market, you know, if they're unemployed, experience lots of periods of unemployment early in their occupational trajectories, that that has a scarring effect, kind of forever. Without sounding too too depressing about that, but you know, there's some evidence to suggest that that when things happen in certain parts of your life course, that they have a potential to kind of impact you for a long time so thinking through how are we going to support children who lost a lot of education education and your and your work those have impacts on on your health we know that people didn't have the appointments that they needed to that there's a long really long waiting list now so in terms of health the kind of the, the immediate thing to focus on is to deal with that because there are obviously we know there are some conditions that your, your outcomes are much much worse if you don't get treated quickly like cancer and, and conditions like that so the sort of immediate thing that has built up over the pandemic is these waiting lists uh, in terms of um, using the health service uh, understanding society is a household survey and it's not just the person that gets impacted by these things but everybody else around them so if, if you're increasing people's kind of caring the, the the burdens on people in terms of caring that has lo- much wider impacts than just the the person or their household if people can't go to work because they're now starting to have to care for someone who didn't you know get who wasn't seen by the health service as quickly as they should have those kind of knock-on accumulating impacts are things that we we should be dealing with and those are the things that I would say in terms of health is, is certainly something that we, we need to prioritize but as I said there are these other kind of non-health um, areas that also need some priority.
0: Day- David, what would you say to that? What what do you feel the recovery needs to prioritise?
2: I think one thing in particular that, as, as Mina was saying, is I think actually people really starting to get this connection between not just the immediate health outcomes, so things like you know, needing to access the NHS or healthcare services, but that link between the conditions that we're living in, things like our education, the employment we have, the quality of those jobs we do, linking those with just how important they are for health. Because it's not just that focus on tackling poor health, but also making sure we're, we're supporting people to have good health through the lifetime and things like education, good quality work and, and an adequate income are really important parts of achieving that. I think there are definitely some places for immediate action coming out of the pandemic, so tackling the the healthcare backlog, catching up on education. And I think in particular, it's not just that kind of the gaps between this cohort of children and previous ones or those coming after, but the gaps within the cohort of children where it particularly seems that children from more disadvantaged backgrounds had bigger gaps in education through the pandemic. I think then there's also, it needs to be this longer term focus as well, um, which is about really trying to rebuild that resilience, um, trying to tackle some of these long-term inequalities that have become so apparent. And that's things like focusing on designing better quality jobs going forward so it's working with business, as well as co-government schemes to create jobs. And also, you know, identifying those weaknesses in the welfare state and plugging those gaps. And also reinvesting in public services. So we have some long-term commitment to building public services so they're better quality and also with a focus on kind of putting prevention first. So we're not waiting until people really hit the worst outcome before we step in with support.
1: One of the things that came out from in the pandemic was that um, housing really matters for your health. And although we, we sort of know it, the pandemic served, as you said, it served to shine a light on these kind of upstream determinants of health and how they really do matter for health, We know it, but we, we don't in the sense of it's not always, people aren't always so aware of just how much it matters, conditions of work or your housing. And these sort of upstream determinants can have this impact on, on health. It's about health policy to understand all of that sort of stuff as well. It, it is an opportunity to think about how we, we think about all of those things because they will have these wider impacts on health. And it is an opportunity to think about joining up this thinking so that we, when we're thinking about it, we're not just thinking about health service use. By the time you're using the health service, you've already experienced all of these upstream determinants. As you were, you've already experienced living in an area that, you know, might be polluted or you've already experienced living in a house that's or you've already experienced doing a job that's not great for your health and then you use the health service. So it's sort of thinking through all of the pathways to that. So uh, as David said, the immediate thing is to think about the, the backlog in terms of health services. But in the longer term, it is to think about pulling all of this together and thinking thinking it through and thinking how you've got this interaction between the social and the biological and uh, to, to, to impact health.
0: So a final question to you both. What is your biggest fear as we move out of the initial clutches of COVID-19?
2: think my biggest concern is, is really that no action is taken to tackle these issues. There's, I think, a big risk that we're very quickly back to a kind of business as usual type political agenda. And these, these big inequalities that have been, I mean, revealed is probably the wrong word, because a lot of them were, were there beforehand, but have been highlighted. And I think, you know, there is some growing public awareness of them. Politicians are mentioning them, you're hearing it in, in relation to levelling up, is effectively a, is, is largely highlighting lots of these inequalities that previously existed. And I think it's the real thing is that there isn't sustained and real action on these on these issues and it's all too quickly forgotten.
1: The, the, the worst thing almost that could happen is that we kind of go backwards. In understanding society, we had shown that um, active transport, you know, using public transport was uh, good for people in terms of things like obesity and and it was it was also a good uh, thinking through developing that policy might be good in terms of inequalities because if you uh, encourage more disadvantaged people to use public transport, it would d- deal with obesity, and we know there are social differences in obesity. And during the pandemic, obviously everybody stopped using public transport; everybody went back into their car. And so if you if that doesn't kind of if that doesn't go back to back to the way that it, it was, we will exacerbate that inequality potentially. You know, so there's these sort of unintended consequences that could potentially happen um, that we need to keep an eye on so that those are kind of my fears is that we don't keep the focus on trying to deal with kind of inequalities and health inequalities um, in the future because we're sort of trying to trying to deal with the individual things and not looking at things in the round
0: can find out more about our COVID-19 survey on the Understanding Society website. My thanks to Professor Meena Kumari and to David Finch from the Health Foundation. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us for episode four in the series, where we'll be looking at whether volunteering makes young people more likely to vote.